Hello and welcome to Some Other Sphere, a podcast exploring our strange world, one conversation at a time, hosted by Rick Palmer. This week's episode is about a remarkable woman from Victorian Wales called Lady Charlotte Guest and her quest to preserve the folklore and legends of her adopted homeland, which would be published as the Mabinogion, widely regarded today as one of the most important collections of medieval prose literature in Europe. The stories it contains began life as part of an oral storytelling tradition in Britain's ancient past, featuring political intrigue, bickering royalty, warring armies, noble warriors, brave princesses, wizards, magical technology, trickster-like anti-heroes, monsters, and many other archetypal characters and settings. Before its publication, there was no such genre of fantasy fiction and its influence on our understanding of Arthurian legend, as well as other works by authors such as J.R.R. Tolkien, Evangeline Walton, Alan Garner and Robert Holdstock cannot be taken for granted. My guest is Sean Esther Powell. Sean is studying for a Master's in Celtic Studies and is the creator and host of the excellent Celtic Myths and Legends podcast. We talked about Lady Charlotte and the scale of the project she undertook, Explore what these tales can tell us about ancient Britain and the use of storytelling in that time to engage with the imagination. And of course, look at one of the fantastic stories that make up this incredible work. Sean, welcome to the podcast. Hello, Rick. Um, I'm really excited to be here, actually. You've had some absolutely fantastic guests on this show. So I'm really excited to be now counted amongst them. I'm humbled at your kind words. It's, um, <laughs> I'm a huge fan of your podcast too, so it's great to have you on as a guest. Thank you. So to kick off, just tell us a little bit about yourself and your background and, and what inspired you to to start your podcast and, and you also do a blog as well. Um, well, I'm finishing off my Master's in Celtic Studies at the moment. So I think that was the beginning of um, when I started my podcast, which is um, Celtic Myths and Legends podcast. But I've always had an interest in myths and legends and storytelling. And I think it kind of comes with being from Cornwall and also having most of my family from Wales as well. They're such brilliant rural landscapes to both places that just lend themselves to these myths and legends so it seems to me it seems almost inevitable that I was going to be excited and interested in that kind of thing yeah definitely um your 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 podcast starts with a a tale of a of a Cornish pixie was that something (laughs) that you um a story that you knew from your childhood Yes, um, Cornish pixies. Um, I think even if you're not interested in myths and legends and you're Cornish, you at least know about piskies. I mean, it'd be rude not to. Um, I'm not saying that I do believe in Cornish pixies, but I'm also not saying that I don't. <laughs> so when I go for my um, walks in the woods and on moors, I'm often looking around, you know, just in case. No, I know exactly what you mean. I think it's it's interesting. My perspective is what does it benefit me to say that I don't believe? I don't, you know, it's, um, I'd, I'd rather be open-minded about it and just, and just take it as I see it. And hopefully I might just see it eventually. <laughs> yeah. I think that's the best way to handle these things, to be honest. I mean, yeah. What do you benefit from point blank saying these things don't exist? Exactly. So doing your podcast uh, from when you started your podcast to where you are now, having done a, a few episodes, does your, uh, understanding of these stories and the era in which they come from do you 
do you have a better understanding of what that might have been like? I always imagine that it's, one of the difficulties is is that this world is is so far back in time when when this oral tradition began that it could be hard not to kind of look at it through a modern interpretation and sometimes what you might have to do is sort of get away from that and and not worry too much about interpreting it and and just go with with the stories themselves and, and build an idea of of the world from them yeah um I think it's it's interesting because the tales that I've featured so far on my podcast have all been completely different in terms of I've had some that have just been focused on folkloric creatures and that will just be amalgamation of various folk tales collected um, over the years. Some have been um, on literature, so the Mabinogion, you know, written, um, you know, in, in print. Um, so you've got all these different stories from all these different mediums so whether that's oral tradition whether that's kind of um folklore itself whether that's um written literature so it is hard to think of a general kind of celtic era because there never really was one and i i do try and kind of make that point um in all of my episodes as well i say there was never one Celtic nation or one Celtic peoples. It's only sort of in um, retrospect we've looked back and said, oh, these people here at this point were all, you know, had some similarities going on. So we've used the term Celtic. Um, so it is, it's hard to kind of um, put them together and talk about them as a whole, all of these different stories from all these different places, because... Uh, they are from different places, from different eras, in different mediums. So um, that's part of the challenge of collecting these stories and deciding which ones to share. Um, but also one of the most fun parts as well. I can imagine. So do you think that there is a sort of, there is a, a root source or or is it a case of different peoples just telling their own stories and there happens to be certain similarities, perhaps because the landscapes that they live in are, are relatively similar. Personally, I am a big fan of the landscape argument, actually. Um, mm. there are, for example, um, I've made this example many times to many different people, but um, there are lots of different giant myths in Cornwall, and that's because there's lots of big um, slabs of granite rock everywhere. So obviously there's loads of giant um, myths and legends connected to that. Because um, Cornwall is a peninsula as well, it's obviously surrounded on three sides by the sea. There are lots of mermaid myths. Um, same can be said in Wales. There's lots of giant myths in Wales as well. So I really do believe that the landscape um, influences our myths and legends. But I do think that there is an interesting similarity between lots of different types of um, mythical narratives that you can find in various different cultures. And um, obviously you've got the whole um, hero's journey and you can see that kind of structure um, in lots of different narratives. So that's not only in European narratives, but in loads of different cultures around the world. Um, there's this mythological narrative of the hero's journey, which includes, um, you know, trials and tribulations, magical objects, um, all sorts of wonderful things like that. So on one hand, I do think that myths, legends and folklore are connected to landscape. But on the other hand, I can't say of any certainty that there isn't some root story behind it all. I don't know. It's uh, it's interesting to think about, though. 
I mean, I guess as well, early on, there would be oral storytelling tradition, wouldn't it? So these stories would be transferred orally or someone would someone who might not who might be relatively nomadic storytellers might be nomadic and they might take these stories around the parts of of Europe which are where the Celtic people lived and perhaps they were transferred that way yeah that's certainly true it could be a possibility I mean that's definitely the case with the Mabinogion um obviously it was first written in Gosh, I believe there's the general consensus is that it was the 12th and 13th centuries that the first stories were collected in print um, and written word. But you're right in saying that it what these were adapted from um, oral storytelling beforehand. And then the interesting question is, how far back did that go? Was that just oral stories from the last 100, 200 years before it was written down or did that span 500, 1,000 years? Um, that's when it starts to get really interesting when you have to decide how long these oral stories were being um, shared and passed around. Hmm. So what was the reason for them being written down? Was it just that there was the technology there to start doing that or was there an interest in the stories themselves from certain areas of society? I don't know. Um, this is actually quite an interesting um, point in um, the academic um, discussions around the Mabinogion, just why it was kind of collected when it was. Um, perhaps there was uh, an interest in the kind of romanticised view of the far past and the myths and legends that existed then. Um, but with all certainty, I'm not entirely sure. Yeah, I mean, I suppose it's it could be a version of a, a renaissance. We, we there there were a few medieval renaissances, weren't there, around Europe? Maybe this was something like that. Someone took an interest in in writing these down. It's just interesting to imagine who it was for. I suppose if there was if there was an oral tradition, and 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 I imagine at the time that they were written down, not everybody was was literate. It's interesting to to see to think about why they were collected in this way. Yes, definitely. Um, Wales especially has a long kind of history of storytelling. Um, storytellers um, and bards would have place in uh, courts. So storytelling is very, um, it's yeah part of a very long tradition in Wales. So I suppose it makes sense for them to eventually be written down. But I've thought that myself, actually, who it was written for, who was uh, the projected audience for this when like you say a lot of people would wouldn't have been literate yeah i mean i suppose perhaps in the mabinogion it, the stories are about old kings aren't they and, and royalty and, and queens and princesses and heroes and I, I guess perhaps it might be you might be able to kind of if it was the royalty of the time um I, i'm not sure i'm not sure what wales was really like as a as a country in the early medieval period i think it was still separate kingdoms but perhaps it was a way to for them to form a connection with these the ancient past of their country a bit like a bit like today like uh, leaders will try and find a connection with the the sort of core national identity of of a country to to kind of give themselves some sense of belonging to that land yeah i definitely think that that makes sense actually it seems to be a continuous process that human beings like to do where we like to trace our roots and we like to have this idea of the past and where we're from and where what our country did in the past and all those sorts of things um there is also 
uh, a general idea as well that the stories, even though they were written down, would have still been performed at the time as well. There are lots of things like little rhymes and poems in the stories. Um, there's the general idea that there might have been kind of gestures used when talking about the stories, kind of indicating um, certain landscape features as well. So I don't think they would have just been like books today that would have just been um, written down. I think they would have been performed as well. Who knows if they would have been performed at courts or where they would have been performed. But yeah, there it was this mm. idea that they would have also been um, performed. Oh, wow. that's that's really interesting. So let's let's get onto the Mabinogi in itself. Just give us a brief introduction to to what it is and, and its and its history as a as a piece of literature. So the Mabinogion is um, actually not only the first prose literature in Wales; it's the first prose literature in of Britain. So it's it's really really quite important. Um, when most people think of the Mabinogion, you think of the four branches of the Mabinogion, but actually it's um, quite mm. a few different things. So you've got four branches, which are four narratives, and they sort of follow the kind of hero's journey structure. Most of them in some way will make reference to Pryderi. Um, then you have four native tales. So those uh, four separate tales that aren't connected to Pryderi and the heroes found in the four branches. And then you have three romances, which are like poems. So there's been a general idea that obviously it wasn't all written down by one person. These were stories collected from various different sources and then collect and then put together um the first english translation of this um first put to the mainstream was by lady charlotte guest as well yes um i wanted to talk about her because she was it's, it's thanks to her really that the the version that we have of, of that those stories today was published yes she is absolutely one of my heroes i think she's brilliant brilliant yes just tell us a little bit about her then and, and how she came to be involved in in that project so Lady Charlotte Guest, as you can imagine by Lady, was an aristocratic woman and she married an ironmaster from Merthyr Tydfil, which is where most of my family are from. <laughs> Big shout out to Merthyr. Um, <laughs> so she was, she was English, so she married a Welsh man and she moved to Merthyr. Um, and that was when she had this really big interest in kind of Welsh myths and legends and local history and things like that. So by the time she moved to Wales, I think she could already speak or, or write in something like seven languages, you know, brilliantly intelligent woman. Um, so that lent itself to obviously her interest in Welsh as well. She was a linguist. So her main interest was collecting these stories and then writing and translating them into English and then publishing them. So they, were, they weren't published altogether as one big volume straight away. They were published, I think the first was in 1844, and then there was one a few years later, and then a few years later after that. Um, and I think it was 1877 when the whole volume of all of them together was published. But she really was a fantastic woman because um, 
like I said, she was a woman at the time, so it wouldn't have been an easy thing to kind of hold your own in circles, um, talking about literature, talking about education. Right. She was interested in all sorts of political movements and philosophical movements as well. She also had 10 children with her Welsh husband. <laughs> so, I mean, I know she wouldn't have been doing the bulk of the um, the the work with the children I don't expect but still having 10 children and also translating these stories and bringing them to the mainstream was uh, incredibly impressive definitely I mean it, that sounds like a yeah, someone who, who was very industrious yeah definitely but not only did she just translate these stories she also um, was a big big um, proponent in arguing um, their historical significance in the wider European literature um, concerning Arthurian legends. So it's not only that she recognised that these were brilliant stories and translated them into English so that more people could access them and read them, it was that she really argued, argued the case of how important they were not only to Wales, not only to British literature, but to European literature and wider literature as a whole. Yes, because uh, there are there are stories in in the Mabinogion that uh, have Arthurian elements to them, aren't there? Yes, um, in um, Culloch's story, um, Arthur is a warlord. You know, in in that story, so Arthur and Merlin arguably do pop up in these stories, not in the four branches of the Mabinogion, but in the four hmm. in the, in the native tales, um, Arthur features. So yeah, there is this case of um, whether or not it is um, part of a wider European um, movement of um, courtly and chivalric romance, or whether they were just unique to Wales. But yeah, it's it's very interesting that not only did she translate them, but she also really did argue their importance. So when she um, started on this effort to to find these stories, where where were they? I mean, where did she have to go to find them? Were they were they kept somewhere safe, or was it a case of trying to track them down and a bit of a detective case, I suppose? I think maybe she did. There was a little bit of a detective case in them, but um, most of them come from as the Red Book and the White Book. Um, oh gosh, mm. <laughs> I've totally forgotten how to pronounce the name of it. Bear with me a moment. <laughs> um, yeah, I <laughs> can't okay. remember. Just just go by the red book and the white book. Um, and these were manuscripts <laughs> that held um, lots of them. So I think it was the white book of Rydech. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that quite, uh, correct. And the red book of her guest, mm. I think. And they were two medieval manuscripts. Um, one was written, I think, in the middle of the 14th century. And the other was written... Um, maybe a few decades after that. So that's where the bulk of it's from. But then there's also little poems and native tales that are taken from elsewhere. Right. Okay. So when, when she was doing this, I suppose, did she did she know of the existence of all these elements of the Mabinogion? Or, or was it a case that there was sort of a, still an oral tradition and, and, and that could be used to kind of find these stories if you see what i mean I'm, I'm i'm just trying to i'm just trying to imagine what it was like for her to try and get an eye understanding of how to how to know where to end with what would constitute the the project yeah um well actually there was um 
someone called William Owen Pugh, and he had started to translate the Mabinogion um, before Charlotte Guest by a few decades. Um, so he had translated Poil, which is the first, uh, which constitutes the first branch of the Mabinogion following the hero Poil. Um, I believe he'd written it under something like the Mabinogion or juvenile amusements being ancient Welsh <laughs> romances. That was the full title, right. something, you know, crazy like that. And that was at the end of the 18th century. Obviously, Charlotte Guest published hers in the middle of the 19th century. But um, she wasn't just using William Owen Pugh's um, translations. She wasn't working on his translations, but she did use um, the the, oh gosh, the inside, oh god, I've completely forgotten the word for it. But she did use some of his notes um, that he had written about them. Um, and she did kind of extract a lot of information from that of the structure of how to use it. But I, d I don't actually know how she thought to collect the what is collected in the Mabinogion. Mm, it's just it was just something that that struck me. I mean, it's a, it's an amazing effort to to collect the stories. But I I always imagine is it. Sometimes you can put stories together and make a and make a work. You know, it wasn't originally intended that way, but it's come together and and it's um and it, and it works really well. There's a definite relationship between all the stories in the in the Mabinogi, and I, I can see that. But it's I'm just wondering if there were some stories that that are still out there and haven't been included. <laughs> oh, that's definitely a possibility. I mean, like I said, most of them were from the White Book and the Red Book, and it was little fragments and um parts of those tales that were used to um, make the bulk and make the collection of the Mabinogion. But I'm sure there were plenty of oral stories that existed at the same time that weren't written down. So that kind of opens up another avenue of discussion about why it was that these were the stories that were collected mm. and, you know, all of the forgotten oral stories at the time and why they weren't collected. You know, was there an agenda um, for the person collecting them? Um, because I personally think that there is a really strong current of um, moral code throughout the fabric of the whole of the Mabinogion mm. because you can argue that they are just kind of... Um, magical realism stories they're stories of fantasy and knights and um, princesses and wizards and they're pure entertainment um but actually there really is a strong current of moral integrity and moral code throughout the whole of the Mabinogion yeah that's, that's I think you make a really good point I I'm not a fan of the idea of stories from the past being used to sort of the, the idea sometimes that myths and legends come about because it's a way for a group of people or society to understand the world around them. I, I think the more you study past societies, you realise that their handle on the world was was just as sophisticated as, as ours is. And if anything, I, your day-to-day -day person might have had a better understanding of their world relative to them than, than we do. So I... Yeah. No, go ahead, sorry. No, just agreeing with what you're saying, definitely. Um, I think there, yeah, I think there's a really strong case to say that that um, in times before the internet, obviously when people living in smaller rural communities, um, there was a stronger sense of of community and of sharing um, various stories and of understanding the world in which they were living in as well. I think it is kind of a condemning view, isn't it, of the people of the past, especially um, 
the rural poor people of the past to say, oh, they were, you know, they were so silly. They didn't understand anything that was happening. So they made up dragons and all sorts of things to understand the world. Um, when actually lots of folkloric creatures, if you think about it, are quite logical explanations for kind of phenomena that was happening. Yes, exactly. Um, and another thing that I find myself talking with guests on this podcast quite often, like, is just that, that we, I don't think we can quite grasp how different the world was uh, even a few hundred years ago. So a, a thousand, fifteen hundred years ago, I mean, it was, it was radically different. I mean, the night sky was far more clear. Um, communities were smaller. Uh, you know, there was, an, there was an oral tradition of telling stories rather than written. So your your whole like your mind, I think the mind of of someone back then is perhaps diff slightly different to to ours, and its and its way of understanding the world is is really hard to get a to get a grasp on. And so, when it comes to things like the entities that we see in in folklore, I'm I, I'm pretty open minded to their existence in in a way. I'm not sure if it's a physical existence, but when it comes down to a reality, I, I don't like to kind of to dismiss the accounts that we get from the past just because they don't fit with our modern understanding of the world. Yeah, I'm a big believer in the there's a grain of truth to every kind of myth and legend. And sometimes that grain might just be a grain, but sometimes that grain might be a giant granite rock. <laughs> Who knows? You can grow an oak tree from a seed. So if there is a a seed of truth, then there's still potential for a, for a big old truth tree, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a lovely image. Um, definitely agree with that. I really do. Um, yeah, there is, there really is no way of determining what the people of one thousand fifteen hundred years ago, um, what their minds were like, what they were like as people, um, how they viewed the world. It's really just guesswork, and that's what uh, why I love kind of. Um, ancient history so much actually because a lot of it is guesswork and it is kind of puzzle piecing but it is easy then to fall into the trap of kind of having a very condescending view of people of the past and assuming that now we are so much more enlightened and obviously we know so much more yeah i know what you mean it's a, like a it's an, an overly academic interpretation of these of these things isn't it i think yeah, definitely. Especially because, um, like I said, um, I do think there were stronger communities in the past, but even in the past. So in terms of um, during the Industrial Revolution, there was a really big interest in um, the resurgence of folk festivals and folklore. And you had all these um, academics that were very quite condescending about the rural poor, but they had this idea of, oh, it's the Industrial Revolution. No, oh, we are the academics of the time. It's up to us to r write down all these stories that these people would otherwise forget about. Um, so I think there's always been a tendency to be very kind of condescending towards certain types of people and certain types of stories. Yeah, I, I think you're right there. So I, I really loved the episode of your podcast all about the Mabinogion. And you pick a really fantastic story from it. It's from the it's the first four branches, isn't it? It's one of those stories. Yes, it's the second branch of the Mabinogion, um, Branwyn. Just tell us before we get into that particular story because it, it's fantastic. Uh, what are the the four branches? And because they're the Mabinogion, aren't they? And I think I read that the Mabinogion is is sort of a it was a mis misinterpretation of of the name and so we have the Mabinogi and then the Mabinogion comes from that but the 
term Mabinogi and is sort of a misunderstanding when when they came to naming this this work. Yeah, that's true. Um, and lots of academics now will just say Mabinogi rather than Mabinogion. Um, but Mabinogion was, um, it's thought to be um, a typo, <laughs> a medieval typo, if you can believe it. I love that. Um, a medieval typo <laughs> of Mabinogi, which was already um, a plural a Welsh plural. So um, Mabinogion was written to be a plural of Mabinogi, which was itself mm. already a plural. So um, uh, there's not um, an exact idea of what it means, but Mab or Mab is son. So there is this idea of um, kind of son of, and, you know, obviously heroes are always traced by being son of, and then it's um, a, lot, a lot of the time it's usually mm. their mother, which is quite interesting in this. Right. And the four branches themselves. So you've got Poil, um, Prince of David, and you've got Branwen, daughter of, I think it's Llaia or Llia, um, Manawadan, son of Llaia or Llia, and Math, son of Mathonwi. So each story is about a different set of characters, a different set of heroes, um, but Pridery kind of... Um, is referenced in all of them. But Branwen, um, the second branch, is kind of... I like it because it, it does... All of them seem very contained. So they might have mm. um, links here and there, and they might be kind of linked in some wider way. But all four branches um, individually tells a very contained story. Right. So let's let's just get into that the Branwen element. The is that the second branch? Yes, I'm happy to. I, <laughs> I really love this branch. It's brilliant. Um, so I, actually, I was at Saint Fagan's um, Museum the other day, the Welsh f um, Folk History Museum, and there was a wonderful historic mm. building there, and they had a big tapestry of the Branwen. Um, story so i've always brilliant of all of the stories of the mabinogion that was the one that was was on there and it's obviously the one that i picked to be my favorite as well mm. um so I'm, i'll just launch myself into it so yeah please do. essentially uh branwen is the sister of bran who is the giant king of britain um benedigifran i think um is another way of saying his name but i quite like I, I like Bran. Bran is a nice kind of strong name and obviously very then connected to Branwen. So the Bran notices that the Irish are kind of um, in their boats and they're on the way to his lands. And when they kind of set foot on his soil, the king approaches Bran and he says, I, I, I'd like to marry your sister, Branwen. Um, of course, he doesn't approach Branwen and ask this. He asks um, Bran. <laughs> which I make that point because it kind of it's important later on because Branwen says mm. yes to her when her brother's like yeah okay you know you're gonna marry the Irish king I'm, I'm assuming that she's like okay yeah that's fine by me but they have a half brother called Ethnician and Ethnician is I honestly think he is one of the most interesting literary characters because he is so hard to pinpoint um, he could be a trickster character, but he also shows self-sacrifice. Um, he's very violent and sadistic, but again, um, seems to have remorse for his actions. Um, but I'll get into that a little bit more at the end of the story. So Ethnician... He might he um, 
Sorry, he, he immediately, when you mention him, I immediately think of um, uh, Tom Hiddleston as Loki. In the yes, no, I, I definitely do as well. It's very much a trickster um, <laughs> character. And of course, what I like about the character is there isn't just one kind of pigeonhole stereotype. He's all, he's a very complex character. Mm. Um, so you could say he's a trickster character, but you could also say he's loads of different things. Much like Loki, you know, the a lot of these um, yeah. mythological figures, they aren't just one type of character. They display various different behaviours in different tales that they're concerned with. So um, Ethnician is yeah. angry that no one consulted him about this marriage. They went straight to Bran, um, but of course Bran is the king, so it makes sense. Um, but he's very angry. So what he does is something that's purely sadistic and rage-filled. He he mutilates the horses of the Irish men, which is, of course, a, a horrible thing to do and isn't rooted in any kind of logic or rationality. It's purely just blind rage that he was not consulted about his half-sister's um, marriage. So there we have this really interesting idea of kind of insult and reparation because obviously Ethnician insults the Irish people by doing this. And Mafaloch, who is the Irish king, um, his advisors gather around him and say, look, this, this terrible thing has happened to us. We need to get recompensed for this. So then it's up to Bran the king to be very diplomatic about it. And he says, look, because my half-brother has done you this great, great um, injustice, I will give you some gifts. And amongst those gifts is Cauldron of Rebirth, which is a very important factor um, towards the end of the story. So there was this idea in medieval Wales, um, a very, very important um, legal and moral idea, that insults do... Um, need reparations but once you've had a reparation once you have been compensated for the insult done to you then you should just draw a line draw a line under it it's it's all done and dusted you shouldn't hold grudges right um and i like that idea i think yes. and again that kind of goes to your point of um people of the past also being very sophisticated in their kind of um social and moral codes and ideas and it's a very sophisticated idea you know the idea if someone insults you if you get kind of equal um, compensation for that, you should forget it because nothing good can come from holding grudges. And that's really, really um, evident in this story. So Mafoloch takes Branwyn back to Ireland and they have a year when they seem quite blissfully happy. She births a child, a son. And then his advisors gather gather around him and sort of whisper in his ear. I like to think of them as um, sort of like um, oh, I can't remember his name. The the King of Rohan in Lord of the Rings. <laughs> I can't remember his name even. <laughs> oh, yeah, but the I guy know, that's kind of whispering yeah. horrible things into his ear and turning him against oh. his own people. That's how. Yeah, uh, worm tongue. Yes. Worm tongue. Yes, worm tongue. That's how I imagine the advisors of um, Mafoloch in my in my imagination. So they gather around him, and they say, "Look, um, we know that you've got this 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 wife, and she's given you this son, but we're 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 kind of remembering those those horses, you know, those horses that were were mutilated. I think we should." Um, we should hold on to that grudge a bit longer, even though we've been given this brilliant cauldron of rebirth, this fantastic magical object. I think we should punish Branwyn a bit more. 
So that is what they do. Um, they put her into a tower. They hold her essentially prisoner. And when she is held in captivity, which is essentially what's happening, she's held in captivity within a tower. She trains birds to send a message across the sea to her, to her brother Bran to say that she is being trapped. And I think that's um, that's brilliant, really. She trains them to kind of deliver this message to Bran. Um, and of course, when he sees this, he sees that his sister has been insulted. She's being held prisoner in, in her own home at this point. Um, he's furious and he, he sends his soldiers and himself across to Ireland. And there's this brilliant, brilliant image of the Irish people seeing the, um, the fleets coming over, the ships. Um, and they break down these bridges between um, various lands. And at one point, Bran has to lay himself into the water and be a bridge for his own men to cross. Because I don't know if I mentioned, but Bran is actually a giant. And right, the fact yeah. I didn't mention it before is because the story never mentions it, <laughs> which is one of my favorite things. Um, the magic, <laughs> yeah, the magical realism of this is just. By the way, yeah, he's a giant. Yeah, it's just taken for granted that he's a giant. They're not like, by the way, Bran is a giant. They just say he lays his body down in the ocean and people use him as a bridge. So there is no other logical way of interpreting interpreting that. Um, but that's what they do. They go across to Ireland. And then obviously the Irish are like, oh, gosh, we, we really we've, you know, put our foot in it now. So what they do is they offer <laughs> because they have now insulted Bran, they offer to compensate him. So one of their their form of compensation, which is another indicate indication that Bran is a giant, is they say, we will build you a house as you have never had a house of your own because you're so big. So, um, yeah, it's another w way that we know he's a giant. But what they don't tell him is that they put, they have this idea of putting sacks in, on all of the posts in this gigantic house. And in each sack is an Irish soldier. And an Irish soldier is then going to come out of the sack and kill all the Welsh men when they are inside this huge house. They're contained and obviously their guards are down. Um, you've got this whole idea of kind of like the, the red wedding of Game of Thrones almost. You know, you have hosts, you have um, your host and you have people, um, guests into your own home. You're not supposed to um, hurt them or injure them in any way. But that was the idea. Mm. Um, but interestingly enough, Ethnician notices these sacks and he has this um, interesting rhyme that he says. Um, I can't remember it off the top of my head. But what he does is that he sticks his sword into each one of the sacks and obviously he kills all of the Irish soldiers that are in these sacks. Um, and then there is this huge battle that ensues between the Irish and between the um, Welsh. Oh, I didn't, I forgot to mention as well, Ethnician, um, another one of his horrible things that he does is that he chucks Bran's son into the fire. No, Bran, Bran wins son into the fire. Um, again, it's not an action born of any kind of rational or logical explanation. He just does it because he's a sadistic character, um, which is very interesting mm. because, like I said, there's a big battle that ensues between the two armies, between the two people. And 
the only way to end this battle because obviously the Irish have the cauldron of rebirth. So when the Welsh are defeating the Irish soldiers, they're being put straight back into the cauldron and they're coming back at, again alive, but they're mute. So the soldiers are dying, they're going put into the cauldron, they're coming back mute, but that doesn't affect their fighting ability, they're still soldiers. Um, and the only way to really stop this war, stop this fight, um, Ethnician throws his body into the cauldron and he stretches himself out and he breaks the cauldron apart, thereby destroying himself and killing himself. So I think that he's such an interesting character because his narrative starts with him committing such a violent, horrible um, act and then it ends with him sacrificing himself um, because of his remorse for his deeds um, to save his people. And even when he throws Branwyn's son into the fire, he's very, he's remorseful of it. You know, he's saying, I'm, I'm so sorry about the things that I have to do. And then he does that. And then again, like I said, later on to end the war, he breaks apart the cauldron of rebirth, kills himself and essentially stops the, the fighting. And it ends with, uh, I think, Branwen blames herself for the whole ordeal, which is really cruel and horrible, actually. I'd love for there to be a film or TV adaptation mm. now of the Mabinogion, especially the Four Branches. Um, I'd kill for a Netflix TV series of it. It'd be brilliant. And I'd love for them to flesh out the um, the female characters a little bit more. Yeah. But Branwen, um, she blames herself for this. And I think she just dies of sadness, basically. Um, but the surviving soldiers, I believe that there's seven of them, the surviving soldiers from the battle, the Welsh soldiers, take the head of Bran the Giant um, back to Britain, and I think they put it where London is right. is now, basically to frighten off like the French and anyone that comes over to kind of um, sail towards Britain. They've just got this giant head staring at them at, angrily, being like, don't do it. Um, but that's how the story ends. I don't want to obviously go too into detail because I obviously want people to read it, yeah. but that's the general kind of um, skeleton of it. No, I mean, it's... It's fantastic, and and thank you for retelling it. There, I mean, it's just got it's just got so much going on. Like it's it's got like a, a machine that resurrects the dead, giants, you know, murder and war and conflict and pretty much everything you you want in a. I mean, it's a it's a great story, but I can see I can see the power it, that it has in, in in its telling. When we you just you talking talking, then was it's a really engaging story. Yeah, and like you said, it has so many elements within it that makes it so interesting. It's not just a purely fantasy story there to entertain you. It's also a moral story um, with a moral code. Um, it's also a kind of um, war story. It's a bit of a romance story. It's a tragedy. Mm. Uh, it has all these fantastic elements about it. And I, I it's one of my... Um, reasons for loving the Mabinogion so much is that they're so diverse in the themes that they're hitting. You know, it's all these different things just collected in, in these stories. They're not just stories for pure entertainment. They, they, they serve a purpose. Yeah, and they seem to be cautionary tales too. And they seem to be cautionary tales for for powerful people. I I can't help but have the idea that perhaps they were they were written by a sort of the sort of governing class, I would suppose, a bit like the what the Druids 
were. They were sort of clerics and they were like civil servants, weren't they? They are Iron Age civil servants, I think the Druids, basically. <laughs> yeah. I love the idea that, yeah. but I, I like the idea that maybe that they were creating these stories to kind of keep a sort of balance with the people that ruled the kingdom because they probably couldn't control who ruled the kingdom, but they could at least try and mold them with these with these stories perhaps to say look just don't don't bear a grudge um <laughs> it's not gonna it's not gonna end well because look what happened with these people yeah that, def- that definitely makes sense actually especially when um lots of the morals of the past are tied up with um religion and religious morals and obviously a lot of um the people of the past that would have been literate would have been um men of the cloth who would have been religious men hmm. um, um so i think that is very interesting um what types of people would have been writing these and for what reason I, I like that reason actually this idea of civil servants just trying to keep their rulers in check so yeah. that's a fun one i like it yeah yeah thank you also um brand's gigantic head being in london it just makes me think i had a real visual idea of of that being something that you might see in a in a hellboy comic um, just a gig- gigantic head underneath London of, a, of, yeah. an ancient, of an ancient being. Yeah, it's it's brilliant, isn't it? Mm. And and you you, hear, you make a really good point because in that story they don't mention that Bran is is a giant, but they they do mention it eventually. But it, it makes me think. Well, I guess they didn't deem it important. That's just part of how they told stories. And I suppose we when we. In modern times, there is a lot given to detail and and description. Um, in an oral storytelling tradition, I guess there isn't the need to dwell on that too much, and and you can just carry the story forward and concentrate on the on the plot points that you were mentioning before about the about the treachery and the grudges and the and the, and the cost that these things can have. And it's and it, and it goes back again to what we were talking about earlier that if if things like size and and origin and and the makeup the physical makeup of of these characters then i guess their that might have also affected their the way that they looked at the real world i think um it's really interesting that they that they don't make a mention that he's a giant and they do take it for granted and that's one of my favorite um parts of it this magical realism that it is taken for granted that he is a giant but then it kind of lends itself to this idea that they were performed as well. So as they're telling the story, they could be making gestures about Bran, you know, opening their arms out wide, maybe, um, mm. indicating um, a feature of the landscape that was as giant as he is when talking about him. Um, you know, there is this idea that gestures and performance would have been happening alongside um the retellings of these stories well that's just one idea anyway but yeah I, I love that it's it's taken for granted that he's a giant and that the only way you know is through kind of quite subtle well not so subtle indications you know using his body as a bridge and have never having set foot in the house but it's you have to you as the audience have to come up with that yourself almost and um yeah it's interesting that you you mention about modern storytelling as well being very reliant on um details because there is something to be said about kind of backing off on the details a little bit and letting um your imagination kind of run wild definitely yeah i i think the imagination is is something as someone who's who's very interested in in paranormal subjects and ideas i think a lot of it is to do with the imagination in terms of a lot of effort 
in paranormal research is is focused on find of of, of proving if something is real or or not. And I think that those two sides don't realise that the the game is sort of loaded against them because I mean, what's how do we know what what reality is? I mean, you know, I mean, and and I think the imagination plays a large part of that, and we're sort of not seeing the whole the whole picture and, and you know, exploring stories like this i think it, it helps to engage with those ideas really to to see how past societies and what the stories they told and and how that might indicate how they not so much interpreted the world but just 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 how they experienced it yeah, certainly. I mean, especially when you say, um, you know, what's real and what's not real. You know, there's some theories that say that we're all living in a simulation right now. So uh, what what yeah. is to say about what is real, what is not real? It, it's kind of that kind of narrow um, definition of things, I think, sometimes takes away from the power of stories and the power of um, experiences. Yeah, I, 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 I think you're exactly right there. Well, well Sean, this has been... Fantastic. Um, I've really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me on here. It's been it's been brilliant. Thank you. Oh, you're very welcome. So if people want to find out more about you and, and what you do, how do they do that best? <laughs> how do they find me? Yeah. Um, you can find me on Twitter, um, primarily on Twitter, actually, at Celtic Myths Pod. That's uh, my handle. Um, my normal handle is just Sean Esther, and I've got a blog that talks. It's I don't post a lot, but I've got a blog that talks about um, the landscape of um, Cornwall and Wales and myths and legends, stuff like that. But you can find the podcast under Celtic Myths and Legends Podcast. That's um, on Spotify and um, iTunes and loads of other ones. I, I won't list them all. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's that's the best way to find me is probably Twitter. Um, Facebook, um, Celtic Myths and Legends Podcast on there as well. But I'm most active, I'd say, on Twitter. Brilliant. Yes, yes. Um, I'll, I'll make sure to include all that information in the show notes. Thank you. Oh, you're very welcome. Yeah, thanks again, Sean. Yeah, thank you for having me on the show. It's been absolutely uh, brilliant. I've really enjoyed it. One thing I love about this podcast is that my guests have such enthusiasm for their subject, and this episode was no exception. It was fascinating to explore the origins of the stories that make up the Mabinogian with Sean, as well as the oral storytelling tradition that preserved them for hundreds of years. The idea that they might have been performed as a sort of theatre is intriguing too, and makes me think of similar practices that use masks to depict emotions and characters, such as is found in ancient Greece and Japan. It gives us a tantalising glimpse into our past, and an insight into the mythic stories that have entertained and inspired people across generations. This was another episode where I ended up discussing the nature of reality with my guest, and that theme seems to be cropping up more and more as the podcast progresses. It's hard for me to envisage the life of someone in early medieval Wales, and how stories such as that of Branwen could have affected their perception of the world around them. I think thanks should also go to Lady Charlotte Guest, who is owed a debt of gratitude for her efforts in publishing the Mabinogion. I heartily recommend the episode of the Celtic Myths and Legends podcast, where Sean goes into further detail on these subjects. There'll be a link to Sean's podcast in the show notes. Well, listeners, that's it for now. If you'd like to contact me at Sphere HQ with ideas for future episodes or suggestions for guests, please email someothersphere at gmail.com. You can find the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify and Stitcher. Likes, 
ratings and reviews are very much appreciated. Thank you for listening.